0: Morning everyone. A lot of you here today. It's great to see so many faces. Welcome, welcome, welcome on Facebook. Uh, Great to be with you all today. Uh, Just happy to be here uh, preaching the Word of God today. Uh, So what we're going to do for the next few weeks is uh, we're just going to take a little bit of a break from the Book of Romans. Um, You know, we have Advent, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, but we don't really do this for uh, the upcoming Uh, Easter holiday and and we really should. So what we're going to do is for the next few weeks we're just going to take a look at some of these episodes that occurred during Jesus's Passion Week uh, leading up to Easter Sunday. Uh, So we just uh, picked a few of them uh, probably beginning today in Mark chapter 14 and uh, we'll probably do a little running through the end of uh, the book of Mark Uh, So today, our message is going to be uh, from the passage that John read uh, about Jesus's supreme worth, and that's Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Uh, So before we get into the message, we'll just ask the Lord to come and aid us this morning uh, in prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, Lord, to uh, worship your Son. Lord, to see Jesus' supreme value. And Lord, I pray that uh, through uh, the preaching of the word this morning, that your Holy Spirit will come and attend to it. And Lord, help us apply this to our lives, Lord. May Jesus be the most important thing, the central thing in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Jesus' supreme worth. Uh, did anyone here buy Apple stock in 1980 when it was first offered? I was hoping for a loan. <laughs> well, if you had first bought Apple stock uh, when it was released uh, in December of 1980, the price was $22 a share. Uh, and since uh, 1980, it has split many times. It's split uh, five times, three times a two-for-one, one time at seven for one, and just last August, it split at, again, a four for one. Uh, so that one share that you bought in 1980 would now be 224 shares. Uh, and those shares would have a current worth of $27,368 at the current price of $122 a share. Now, if you really spent big and went for $100 in 1980, well, you would have bought about four and a half shares of Apple stock that would be worth uh, well over $124,000 today. You would own over a 1,000 shares of Apple stock from just that one share that you bought in December of 1980. Well, at the time many people just couldn't see the value in Apple stock. That's why not everybody bought it. They were like, you know, what's a computer? Who's ever going to use this thing? What what purpose could this possibly serve, right? Uh, Now our lives, we could not imagine without a computer. But if you recognize the value of Apple stock in 1980, then you put your money into it. Well, Mary of Bethany recognized Jesus's supreme value, which was why she put her money, her goods, her perfume uh, into Jesus. She valued him. Uh, Of all the people mentioned in this passage, we have uh, the chief priests and the scribes in verses 1 and 2, and we have Judas and the disciples in verses 10 and 11. Uh, Only Mary, of all these people, recognized Jesus's supreme worth, and she sacrificed her wealth for him. Uh, she understood that, that Jesus' value far exceeded the price of, of this perfume uh, that she happened to own, and, and it was no uh, issue at all for her to honor him with the very best of what she had, uh, to, to, to break this vial, to, to pour this expensive perfume uh, over his head and feet that was worth a year's wages. Now, on the other end of the, of the spectrum, we have the chief priests and the scribes, and we have Judas and the disciples. Uh, Judas, particularly, one of Jesus's inner 12, one of those who Jesus chose, uh, but he failed to recognize and value his Messiah. And so uh, he had the opportunity to, to value him as Mary did. Uh, and yet, uh, be, when, when, when Jesus turned out not to have the value to Judas that, that Judas wanted, which was to usher in a material earthly kingdom uh, and seat Judas high in it and have Judas uh, have a lot of material wealth and status. Uh, Once that dream was gone, uh, Judas sold him out. Uh, He was not worth anything uh, to Judas anymore. So I want us to see how Mark structured this passage. Mark uses a, a, a technique uh, often in his Gospels, uh, which scholars uh, call the sandwich structure, a very scholarly word. Uh, but what they do is, is uh, Mark kind of sandwiches uh, a story in between two other stories. So here uh, in verses 1 and 2, we have on this level, the beginning, uh, the chief priests and the scribes, and then above it is uh, the uh, Judas and the apostles. And in between, he sets Mary. Uh, which is meant to contrast uh, what we see in both uh, Judas and the apostles and in uh, the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, so that's the way uh, he wants us to see this passage, just looking at Mary in contrast uh, to these other two groups of people. Uh, Mary is, is seen uh, as, as the model that we are to follow. In fact, whenever we find Mary in the Gospels, uh, it's not very, very often, but whenever you see her, what's she doing? She's sitting at Jesus' feet, right, listening to the words that he says and cherishing uh, everything that he says, valuing him, sitting at his feet, looking at him above anything else that she might be busy with. And so we need to learn to value Jesus that way too. So let's talk about the chief priests and the scribes first. We'll see that the leaders plot Uh, Verses 1 and 2, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him covertly and kill him for they were saying not during the festival, otherwise there will be a riot of the people. So we're jumping into the deep end of Mark, so let's have a little bit of context here. Uh, We're in Passion Week now. Uh, at this point in time, uh, we're less than a week before the crucifixion. <clears throat> and G- Jesus was very busy uh, during these last days on earth. Uh, the week started uh, with the triumphal entry, right? He walks in, uh, saddled on a donkey, and they're waving their palm branches, welcoming him to the city. Uh, and then Jesus uh, spoke all kinds of words against the people who opposed him, now, that was the bulk of what he was doing. Uh, so we saw the parable of the two sons who went to work in the field. That's a parable spoken against uh, these chief priests and uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. The parable of the wicked vine dressers. I remember he answered the question uh, from the Herodians about whether it was right to pay taxes to Caesar or not. You, you pay taxes to Caesar because his likeness is inscribed on the coin, but everything else goes to Jesus and to God. He answered the Sadducees' questions about the resurrection. Remember the story, uh, a man had uh, a wife, had seven brothers, married the same wife, uh, and they all died. Whose wife will she be in heaven? Uh, So he answers the question about the resurrection. He pronounced the seven woes on the uh, Sadducees, uh, on the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He predicted Jerusalem's destruction. They would be surrounded uh, on all sides. Uh, He gave the parable of the talents, the parable of the virgins. Uh, and uh, just constantly uh, um, uh, having conflict with the scribes and Pharisees who opposed him. And so he answered every question. He silenced every challenge, uh, and he humiliated them because at every turn he proved to be who he said he was, and they were no match for him, and they hated him for it. And they hated him because he continually showed himself to be who he promised who he said he was, and he showed them to be wrong at every turn. And he did this to them because they refused to recognize who he was. They refused to receive him as their Messiah. So Jesus has supreme and eternal value. They just refused to recognize it, and they rejected him uh, in favor of their tiny little kingdoms and their tiny little pockets of money that they had. So at this point in Jesus's Passion Week, uh, it's Wednesday. It's Wednesday now, uh, because Mark says that it's two days until the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was two days away, and by Jewish reckoning of time, today is Wednesday, tomorrow is Thursday. That's two days, the way they counted time. So uh, Passover began Thursday at sundown. Passover is the first, is, is a single day feast, and then it's followed by a seven day feast Of the feast of unleavened bread so we have eight days here uh, where they're going to be celebrating passover commemorated of course the day when the plague passed over israel the the plague of the firstborn which was against egypt before the exodus Uh, and the jews had to paint their doorposts uh, with the lamb's blood and then the plague would pass over them and it only struck the firstborn of egypt now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorated their hasty escape from Egypt uh, after the Passover. Then they uh, left, of course, uh, and parted. Uh, they left through the parted Red Sea. So that's what's being celebrated here. And so uh, Wednesday night comes and with all that Jesus had said and done, uh, not only in his three-year ministry, but now during Passion Week against the scribes and Pharisees, well, tensions had reached a fever pitch and they just could not, these, these scribes and Pharisees could not let Jesus continue to go on humiliating them and usurping their power and authority. And so they had to do something They had to do something about Jesus. Now, Mark says that the chief priests and the scribes, they plotted to kill Jesus. Matthew and John fill in a little more of the gap. They say that they met at the house of Caiaphas, and this is where the plot was hatched. Now, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, and Annas was a big deal early in the first century. He was the high priest from the year 6 to the year 15 AD. Uh, And the position of high priest, of course, was uh, a very important and prestigious position. And that position of high priest was passed down. And uh, so Annas completed his term in 15. Uh, There were a couple others from Annas's family. And then Caiaphas became high priest in 18. And he served as high priest from 18 to 36. So all the way through Jesus's uh, life in Jerusalem anyway. And so a high priest position was not supposed to necessarily pass down, uh, be passed down by heredity. Uh, that's not the way it was done, except if you could purchase it. And Annas' family had a lot of money, and they were corrupt, and sometimes the high priest went to the highest bidder. And since Annas had already been in office, and since he was known to Rome, and since he had plenty of money, well, he was able to keep that high priesthood in his family. And like I said, there's a lot of money in being the high priest. And that's why Caiaphas was so upset when Jesus was turning over the tables of the money changers and driving out the people who were doing commerce in the temple courts, because every transaction that was going on, Caiaphas got a bite of that. Every transaction, something went into Caiaphas's pocket. And so when Jesus disrupted commerce, he was taking money out of Caiaphas's pocket. And so uh, it wasn't just for religious reasons that Jesus was being persecuted. It was for economic reasons too. Uh, He was taking money out of their wallets. But Caiaphas, he strongly urged them not to kill Jesus during the feast, otherwise there might be a riot. Now, in uh, Jerusalem, uh, during Passover week, there would be an increased uh, chance that there might be some kind of riot, some kind of insurrection, uh, because it was a highly nationalistic time. Uh, this is the celebration of the Jews, uh, the firstborn of Egypt. They all died, but the Jews were spared that. And this was the time when the Jews were freed from their oppressive captors, the Egyptians. And so uh, they're remembering their freedom. Uh, But again, it's the first century, and they were under Egyptian control. Now they're under Roman control, and so they're, they're being oppressed again. And now there would be extra threats because there would be so many people in Jerusalem during this time. In fact, Josephus says that during the Passover, there could be upward of over 2 million people in this tiny city of Jerusalem at the time. Uh, so that's a lot of people crammed together, and if you got, uh, if you set a match, uh, hypothet or uh, metaphorically speaking, that could result in an uprising that could have been massive. Now, Pilate was not usually in the city uh, during uh, during the regular time. Uh, he lived in Caesarea, but he came uh, during Passover because uh, there was this chance, an opportunity for this uprising, and so he came and he brought thousands of Roman soldiers who were there uh, just in case there was going to be some kind of insurrection. Well, why would the chief priests and the scribes even be worried about uh, Jesus causing some kind of insurrection? Why would, why would anything they were going to do to him cause a riot? Well, we learn that uh, the Jews, the common Jews, uh, they loved Jesus. Uh, they followed Jesus. Uh, and they assumed, that the chief priests and scribes did, that, that these commoners were not going to stand by while uh, the chief priests and the scribes Uh, conspired against Jesus and even went as far as killing him. Remember, just a couple days ago, they had waved palm palm branches and heralded his coming and celebrated it uh, as their Messiah. John chapter 11 says that many believed in him. Uh, Many believed in him because of the signs he had done. So he had quite a following. And if they went trying to do something to Jesus, there might have been some kind of insurrection. So what to do? Uh, The Pharisees convene a council uh, with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the governing body of all Israel, about 70 people. We don't know if all of them were there, but it was an informal gathering. Certainly enough of them were there where they could hatch a plot. And they said, if we let him go on like this, well, all men are going to go on believing uh, against him, and the Romans will come and take away our position and our place. So the planned execution of Jesus is religious, it's economic, and here we see that it's political also. If the Pharisees tried to do it during the Passover, there could have been some kind of civil war on the streets of Jerusalem. And that's the last thing the Jews wanted because if, they, if there was civil war on the streets, well, Rome would have come in, they would have squashed that revolution, and they would have taken away whatever power uh, these uh, chief priests and Pharisees and, and scribes had. So what do we see? What is motivating these scribes and these chief priests? Well, it's not God, right? It's power. It's money. It's authority. It's high position, high status, respect in the public square. Now, that's what's motivating these people. They're looking right at their Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they exchange him for all that the world has to offer, something far less than who Jesus is. Now, These dangers are all present in our world today, right? Um, Nothing has changed. In our world today, we have money, we have politics, we have health concerns, we have all kinds of things going on, and there are all kinds of things that can divert our attention from Jesus Christ as well. And you know that much of the world has gone after those things, and they have refused Jesus as well. Uh, But just like then, we have power and pride and material things, all kinds of things that could motivate us to reject God uh, and to choose those things. Uh, These are things that Satan uses to tempt us and draw us away from God who wants our worship. Well, the Jews, they should have recognized their Messiah. Uh, But they they were blinded. They were blinded by the things of the world. They were were blinded by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and and the pride of life. All these things kept them away from recognizing who Jesus is. And and these things that the Jews were chasing after, those things are not from the Father. Uh, They're from the world. So the Jews, they wanted Jesus out of the way, these chief priests and these scribes. They wanted him off the scene so that they could have their status quo, so they could have their little kingdom. uh, And so they wanted him dead, but they wanted to do it quietly after the feast. But what we notice is that God is still sovereign. They might have wanted to do it their way in their timing, but before the foundation of the world, God had determined that this was going to happen during Passover week in Jerusalem. Regardless of how they wanted to do it, it was going to happen God's way. Because at Passover, the chief priests, they sacrificed a perfect one-year-old lamb for the sins of the people. And that's the only kind of lamb that would suffice. That's why they were inspecting the lambs before the Passover to be sure that they were worthy to be sacrificed. And so now Jesus comes as the replacement, as the substitute, the final once-and-for-all sacrifice who is going to be offered for sin for all time. So he is the perfect lamb, the perfect Messiah, and he is going to offer himself at Passover, one time, uh, his blood for the sin of the world. And so it would happen as God planned, not as man planned. And it was expedited by Judas's uh, betrayal that was coming. And so Uh, the chief priests and scribes. Now, in contrast to how the chief priests and scribes uh, treated Jesus, Mark inserted the story of Mary here into the narrative, uh, anointing uh, Jesus for burial. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table, and a woman came with an alabaster vial of very expensive perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured the perfume over his head. Now, Mark's gospel is not always strictly chronological. It's not always this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Sometimes Mark writes more topically uh, with a purpose in his uh, ordering of things. Uh, And so, as I said before, this is a, a sandwich story. And what we learn here uh, is that John's Gospel tells us that this event happened, Mary's anointing of Jesus' head and feet, six days before the Passover. So what we just said was it was two days before the Passover in verses 1 and 2. Here were six days before the Passover, so this would have been the Friday night before Jesus' triumphal entry. We're still now uh, six days, so we're going back in time a few days. Uh, Mark's purpose is not strict chronology. Uh, it's to contrast Mary uh, with the other people in the story. Uh, so uh, let's talk about Mary's loyalty. Uh, Mark does not mention Mary by name, uh, but John chapter 12, verse 3, tells us that this was Mary of Bethany, uh, the sister of uh, Martha and the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And so they were having this dinner at the home of Simon the leper, uh, and Simon the leper is an interesting thing, right? I mean, Jesus would not have been able to go to Simon the leper's house because lepers are unclean. Uh, So Jesus more than likely had to have healed Simon the leper and this was just how he was known. Uh, Not a nickname I'd like to carry, but uh, that's how he was known in the Gospels. So uh, Simon the leper probably had been healed and that's why uh, they can have this dinner at his house. So while Jesus is reclining there at the table, here comes Mary. With this expensive vial of perfume uh, contained in an alabaster vial. Now, the jar itself would have been very expensive uh, because it's the only type of jar that would have been effective uh, in containing uh, a perfume of, of this consistency and this quality. Uh, so that jar itself would have been expensive. And now the perfume itself would have been extremely expensive uh, because it was this word nard, uh, it's an aromatic oil uh, that comes from uh, this this rare plant in India, so it's it's expensive for that reason. It's also expensive because India is 3,000 miles from uh, Jerusalem, so uh, think about importing Uh, oil from India when you didn't have cars, planes, or anything like that. That's a hike from India to Israel to bring this oil, so it's extremely expensive. And so uh, the vial probably looked something like this. That's an alabaster jar from ancient Cyprus. That's something like what it would have looked like. And so Mary broke the neck of this vial, just smashed it, I guess, and poured out uh, the contents of the vial. Uh, Mark says on his head, John adds that he anointed his feet also and washed his feet with her hair. So it was fairly common back in those days uh, to anoint with oil, uh, perhaps a, a visiting rabbi who was coming to perform a wedding, or you know a guest of honor might, might receive an anointing uh, to some extent, but, but this, what Mary did, uh, was far, far above what anyone had ever done before. This gift of extravagance was so over the top, it wouldn't even be comparable to anything that had ever been done before. So obviously she has the gift of hospitality, she has the gift of generosity, and she's not a poor woman, right? She's, she's got the means uh, to do this. Uh, it's told in Mark, in verse 5, that we'll see in a second, that this perfume was worth 300 denarii, which is a full year's salary for the common working man. Now, can you imagine working for an entire year, collecting 52 weeks worth of pay, uh, spending it on this alabaster vial of perfume, smashing the neck and pouring it out on Jesus' head in about five seconds. There's your year's salary. It's gone in no time. Uh, there used to be a commercial. I don't know if you remember, uh, maybe it didn't play down here, but back when we lived in New Jersey, there was a commercial that we would encourage young men to spend two months' salary on an engagement ring, uh, which seems about right. Two months' salary, you know, five grand, whatever it turns out to be for a young man. Um... It's a lot of money, um, but you have an engagement ring and you have a beautiful wife to put the engagement ring on that she'll wear for her entire life. Uh, so considering the difference, right? Two months' salary seems like a lot for an engagement ring, but a year's salary uh, you know, up in smoke, as it were, poured over his head and it's gone uh, in one year's time. Can, can you imagine that? Well, why would Mary do such a thing? It's because she's the only one in the whole story, who recognizes Jesus's value. The chief priests and the scribes plotted to kill him. And as we're about to see, Judas and his apostles, or the other disciples, Jesus's other disciples, were outraged by the waste. Uh, Verses four and five. But there were some indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume could have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. So this says that there were some indignantly remarking to each other. John chapter 12, verse 4, specifically names Judas. He's the guy who was coming after uh, Mary here. And Matthew 26, verse 8 also adds that all the disciples were also participating in this. Why this waste, Judas said. This this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii uh, and the money given to the poor. Well, the other disciples may have thought and they may have been upset because, yeah, I mean, this money could have been given to the poor. Uh, But John also adds that uh, Judas didn't care a bit about the poor, but he had access to the money bag. And having access to the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was in it. Uh, so the other disciples may have thought this money actually might make it to the poor, but uh, they didn't know that Judas was a thief, and he was taking that money, and that money was never going to make it to the poor. Uh, Mark says that they were scolding her. The NIV says that they rebuked her harshly. All of them, all 12 of them rebuked her harshly. And it's really difficult to stand up to an angry mob, right? Like, especially if you're a woman uh, in first century Israel, and you're standing up to uh, at least 12 people uh, there who were uh, angry with her for what she had done. Uh, Even the disciples who are Jesus's chosen 12, they responded wrongly, and they acted like an angry mob here. Well, We know enough about the disciples and the portrayal that we see in the gospels that they were sometimes a clueless bunch, right? They put their foot in their mouth all the time, constantly getting it wrong. Uh, But Mary is seen here exactly the opposite. Uh, Mary always responds rightly. She's a pillar of the faith. She is what a disciple is supposed to look like. Uh, She always chose what was best. Remember uh, when, when uh, they were having a dinner at Mary and Martha's house. And Martha was complaining because uh, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and leaving Mary to, uh, Martha to do all the preparations and uh, said, Jesus, tell Mary to help me. And what does Jesus say? Martha, 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 you are concerned about so many things, but Mary has chosen what is best and it will not be taken away from her. So here is Mary, again, always choosing what is best, always sitting at Jesus' feet, always placing him in the position of primary importance. Just imagine her, like, you know, on her knees looking up at him and just cherishing everything that he ever said. Well, that is what uh, Mary's attitude toward Jesus was. And so, in response to to the the mob saying something, you know, taking their shots, At Mary, Jesus immediately steps in to protect her. Uh, Verses 6 through 9, Jesus said, "'Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a good deed for me. For you always have the poor among you, but you do not always have me, and you can do for them, good to them, whatever you want. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the entire world, what this woman has done will be told.'" in memory of her. So Jesus steps up. Uh, He defends Mary. Uh, Jesus rebuked Judas and the others. Uh, He told the truth, uh, and they had no response to her. They were not able to defend themselves. And so uh, Jesus saw right through Judas's greed. He knew what Judas was all about. Uh, He had a completely different attitude than Mary had. Judas is pretending to want to help the poor, but really he just wants to to steal. And so Jesus points out his hypocrisy and he says, you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me with you. Now that's not a statement uh, that Jesus makes saying that he doesn't care about the poor. I mean, of course he cares about the poor uh, and we should too. Uh, Jesus was saying, you always have the poor with you, but I have a week left of my life here. Uh, and you need to be focusing on me at this time. Uh, And so we always have the poor among us, and we should do good to them whenever we can. Jesus wasn't saying anything bad about the poor. He was just saying, I am the unique one. Uh, There is nothing unique about poor people, right? We have had poor people since the dawn of time, and we have them today. They will always be among us. We can always do good to them. But we don't always have Jesus with us. Uh, so for them, uh, keep your eye on the ball. Focus on me is what Jesus is saying, because there has never been anyone before or after Jesus who is like him. Now, we don't know uh, if Mary understood. Uh, Jesus says she was preparing my body for burial. Did Mary know that when she poured the, the, the expensive perfume over his head and on his feet? Well, we don't really know what she knew, uh, but we know that that she seems to have a little more of an inkling than the rest of the disciples about what was going on. Uh, you know, Jesus had been saying for a while, we are going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is going to be mocked and scorned and handed over and killed. And on the third day, uh, he will rise again. But the disciples, they seem completely clueless. They never seemed to understand when Jesus said something like that, they would shift gears and say, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The other one would say, no, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They never seem to get it, but but Mary, she seems to get it. She seems to understand a little bit more. Maybe of all the people who followed Jesus, uh, Mary, uh, listening to what he said, uh, seeing what he did, uh, had enough sense to to see that this was more forward-looking than the disciples uh, had an idea about. And so, uh, we don't know, but but whether or not she understood exactly that she was preparing her his body for burial, Jesus gave her the very highest commendation. He said, wherever the gospel is preached, in the entire world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Now that's indeed high praise. If you've been Paying attention uh, since I've been here uh, coming up on four years now, uh, I managed to squeeze in just about every week that the gospel is Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Uh, Somewhere I will say that just about every week. Uh, But we understand what that means on this side of the cross, right? When we hear gospel, we know that, that it's contained in that sentence. But what did they know? You know, Jesus hadn't yet died. Been buried and rose from the dead yet. So when they heard the word gospel, what does that mean to them before Jesus's crucifixion, burial, and resurrection? We don't actually know. Uh, we know that the word gospel means good news, right? And when Jesus came, whenever he came, he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. I come to you preaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Uh, And so Jesus was a a herald in a way, as John the Baptist heralded Jesus, so Jesus was heralding the good news of the kingdom. And he said, uh, the kingdom has come now in me. So I'm sure it would have been cloudy to the disciples and it's not fair to charge them with the same knowledge that we have, but they should have understood something about him, that, that Jesus is unique and he brings good news. He proclaims the coming of the kingdom in him. Well, it seems that the 11 disciples, uh, you know, they seemed to receive Jesus's rebuke uh, and didn't do anything. Uh, you know, they, they, they turned out to be very faithful disciples after Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, but Judas was different. Uh, Judas did not receive that rebuke well. Uh, Judas had a completely different program than the rest of the 11 disciples. And so Judas, uh, now uh, having been stung by this rebuke, Uh, and having rejected Jesus and who he was, and having not valued him at all, seeing that the kingdom was not what he had hoped, uh, Judas is now going to go and plot against him. He's going to be a conspirator in his death. So the other side of this sandwich that I was talking about, the other piece of bread. Here is the chief priests and the scribes. Here's Mary, the meat of the sandwich. And then the the upper piece of bread is going to be Judas and his wicked intentions that we'll see in verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were delighted when they heard this. And promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. So he goes off to the chief priests. He goes off to the chief priests and he says, uh, what will you give me to betray him to you? Uh, Luke chapter 22 verse 3 says that Satan entered into him. Now why Judas did this is subject to a lot of scholarly debate. Uh, There are a few options. Uh, One is that John 11.57 says that the chief priests and the scribes said, if anyone knows where Jesus is, you're to tell us where he is so that we may go and arrest him. So one of the ideas is that he was just following orders, which I find to be highly unlikely. uh, Given his revolutionary nature, he was not much for authority at all, so I don't think that that is a good option. A second option is that he was trying to force Jesus' hand. Uh, Jesus is proclaiming to be the Messiah. Judas understood that to mean that he is going to bring a military kingdom into Jerusalem that defeats Rome, kicks Rome out, and restores Israel to the glory that it had under David and Solomon. And he's going to give Judas a high position in the cabinet, which would be a lucrative position and a position of high status. And Judas has been watching Jesus for three years and saying, what is going on? When is this going to happen? and he's frustrated that it hasn't happened yet, and so he thinks that by betraying uh, Jesus to the authorities, that'll force his hand. He'll be forced to do something if he's arrested. Uh, That is, to me, that's the best option. A third option is that he was just trying to salvage economic gain, which may be part of the second option as well. He realizes that the kingdom is not coming in Jesus, and he's like, well, if this is gonna go down not the way I want it to, I'm at least gonna try and squeeze some money out of this. And so he squeezes 30 pieces of silver out of it. That may be uh, what, uh, what he had on his mind. Uh, I think the second option is the best. I think that makes the most sense in light of everything uh, that we know about Judas. But one thing I want you to see is that, uh, as I said, Luke 22.3 says that, that Satan possessed, inhabited, uh, took over Judas. Now, as a Holy Spirit-indwelled believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that cannot happen to us. Uh, we, the, the Holy Spirit and Satan cannot occupy the same space at the same time. That can't be. Uh, but Judas, obviously not saved, uh, meaning that, the, that, the, that Satan could occupy his heart. And that's what happened to him. Uh, Judas was, uh, was victim of Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour And Satan saw Judas's greed. He saw his motivation for money and power and pounced. Uh, And so that is what happens when we are motivated by the wrong things if we are an unbeliever. Well, we know that Jesus chose Judas as a disciple, but we also know that Judas did not choose Jesus as his Messiah. And so Judas's life is an outstanding example of the intersection between God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We know uh, that according to God's plan, Jesus had to suffer and he had to die in Jerusalem to redeem us from the penalty of our sins. And we know that Judas was God's chosen vehicle to set the events of Passion Week in motion so that Jesus would be killed according to God's plan. And at the same time, God holds Judas responsible for his actions, for putting his death in motion. Uh, In Mark 14, 21, it says, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And so you have divine sovereignty and you have human responsibility both in the same event. Well, Judas's offer changed the timetable of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin first said, let's do it quietly after the feast, but now here comes Judas and he's offering to betray them, Judas Jesus to them, and so that pushes the timetable forward. So instead of killing Jesus after the feast, they would try to do it now, but they would still try to do it quietly. And Matthew tells us that 30 pieces of silver was the agreed upon price, which is the price of a slave trading Jesus, the God of the universe, for the price of a slave. And Judas began looking for an opportune time. So what do we see in this passage? We see Mary sandwiched by the chief priests on one side, Judas and the apostles on the other. Uh, We see everybody in the passage responding wrongly to Jesus except for Mary. She is the only one who responds rightly to him. The chief priests and the scribes sought to kill him for political and economic reasons. Judas, uh, disillusioned by uh, who he wanted Jesus to be and that Jesus turned out to be someone different than what Judas wanted, uh, thought it was a waste to anoint his salary with a year's perfume. uh, And the other disciples agreed only Mary got it right. She's the only one. So my question to us today is, do we have it right? Do you and I have it right? Are we valuing Jesus properly? Do we recognize that Jesus has supreme value in our lives and over anything else in the entire world? And if so, how does that manifest itself in our lives? You know, We have a lot of things that we could be worried about in this life. We can be worried about health and money and all the craziness going on in our country, and we are right to be concerned about those things. Uh, but we are not to put those things ahead of Jesus and his value. If we do that, then we show that we are not valuing him supremely, trusting his sovereignty supremely. If we're involved in any manner of habitual sin and we refuse to repent of it and stop, we are showing that we do not value Jesus supremely. If we proclaim that we are Christians and we do not obey his word, well, then we are not valuing him supremely. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So we need to value him above all other things. Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. No one else could possibly have done that. No one else is our ticket to heaven. No one else can get us there. And so he has to have more value than anything else in the whole universe. And so uh, realizing, recognizing his worth Uh, And living like we do gives us freedom from all the fear that we could face in the world and and all the obstacles and and all the opposition that we might face in the world. Uh, Putting Jesus uh, on the the highest pedestal actually helps us. Um, You know, sometimes we think we need to be concerned about the other things in life and do something about them, and we need to in some respects. But Jesus has to be in first place. And if we put him in first place, everything else falls underneath him, and we can relax because we have eternal security in Jesus Christ who bought us and paid for our sins. And so uh, we don't need to be as concerned as the rest of the world is. We know that in Jesus we have peace and hope, and we will live forever with him. No shares of apple stock, no perfume jars, no other treasured objects can compare in worth to our relationship with him and the price that he paid to secure Our eternity. So just a couple of quick applications, and I would imagine that you can guess what the first one is. Recognize Jesus's supreme worth. You know, many of you have kids, and this is the closest closest example I can think of, because we do anything for our kids, right? We we want to give to them lavishly. Uh, We'd be willing to die for them because we love them that much, Being a parent is the most selfless thing that we can be in a lot of ways because it shows what true love and sacrifice looks like. And as much as we love our children, Jesus loves us more. And that's why he went to the cross to die for us, for our sins. And so in return, we need to value him. Uh, in the same way, above all things, the way that Mary valued him. So we put Jesus on the highest pedestal, let everything fall in underneath that, and our priorities will be in order, including our money, our safety, our comfort, even our family. It all takes a back seat to Jesus. And once we've recognized his supreme worth, the next thing to do is simply to worship him, Think about Judas and Mary. You know, they both lived in first century Rome. They both lived under the same Roman oppression. It was no different for Judas than it was for Mary. Uh, But there were two different responses, right? Judas became a revolutionary uh, and a zealot, uh, interested in status, economic gain. Uh, He was too entangled with the world. He had every opportunity, being in Jesus's inner circle, He had every opportunity to be a worshiper of Jesus, to receive him as his Messiah, but he chose material gain. Mary's reaction to Jesus was completely different. All Mary wanted was more of Jesus more of Jesus. That's all she wanted. So we need to have our priorities in order. We need more of Jesus. We all need more of Jesus. And he invites us to come and to worship him and to come to his well and drink deeply from his love and his grace. And so that's what we need to do. Amen? Lord God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, he is the unique one. There has never been anyone like him before or after. God in the flesh who came, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. Lord, may we recognize that. May we just give that supreme value. May we place everything in line behind the Lord Jesus Christ. Get in line behind him. Submit our lives to him. Follow his example. Love him supremely, Lord, and may our lives be changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.